How much energy are we putting into preparing our hearts for Christ compared to the amount of energy that we're putting into preparing for Christmas? That's basically the question. How much energy are we putting into preparing our hearts for Christ compared to the amount of energy that we put into preparing for Christmas? Now, it's a legitimate question because we're looking into what is commonly called the prologue of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, and in it, John talks about preparing the way for Messiah to come. So let me read to you from John chapter 1, just the first nine verses. This is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now, the thesis upon which we're basing this series of talks is this, that we seem to have developed trivialization into a fine art. And that one of the things that has been momentously trivialized is this whole business of Christmas. And we're trying to look into this scripture uh, to ask ourselves, what really is behind all this Christmas activity? What really is involved in this business of celebrating Christmas? Well, there's one little expression that comes from John's Gospel, which puts it this way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we gazed upon his glory. It was the glory that you'd expect from the one and only who came from God. Now, now think of that for a minute. That what, what, it, what they're actually saying is this, that an event took place in human history, in time and space, when there was an opportunity for men and women to actually personally gaze upon a manifestation of God so that they could get to know God. In reality, that is the essence of the Christmas story. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this expression, the Word, it's a title given to Jesus. What is the significance of it? Well, a Word is the expression of a rational idea. And if we think in terms of behind the universe, there is a rational idea. Vague, unknown, invisible. And yet that rational idea takes an initiative and reveals himself to us in language that we can understand in human form. That is why Jesus is called the Word. He is the outward expression of the invisible God. He is God made known to us. We spend an awful lot of time speculating about God. That's dangerous. We spend a whole lot of time guessing about God. That, that is not smart. I remember a young man saying to me on one occasion, I don't believe in God. I said, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. You see, the, the point is that we make God in our image. 
And we should not be speculating. And we don't have to speculate on what God is like. For Christ has made him known. He is the word, the expression of the rational idea behind all things. John goes on even further. And, and he says, in the beginning, whenever that was and whatever it was, the word had already been eternally existent. Not only that, in an intimate relationship with God. Not only that, he said he was God himself. Not only that, he said all things were made by him. And in case we missed it, he then reversed it. He said, and there's nothing that was made that was not made by him. This is stupendous truth. It is talking about the origins of existence. It is talking about the beginnings of the universe. It is talking about the reason and reality behind all things. And then incredibly, this is what he says, this word became flesh. And so that baby that is born and cradled in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, according to scripture, is none other than the word made flesh. Now he picks up in another picture. This is what John says in verse 9. He said, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Think of that. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So the, the baby who is being born, the, the Christ child that we talk about all the time, now is described as the true light. The true light, a light that gives light to every human being who's ever lived on the face of God's green earth. And he is the true light. There are many, many lights flashing to get our attention. They're becoming more and more brilliant. They're more and more colored. There's more and more motion. There's more and more activity. It's a frantic, frenetic world. And all the lights are trying to grab our attention. In the middle of it, it shines one calm, clear light. The true light. And that is Jesus. The little island of uh, Barbados is a beautiful place. We've been there on numerous occasions. And one corner of Barbados, there's a holiday inn now that has been built on the old estate of Sam Lord. And it's, it's known as Sam Lord's estate. Sam Lord was one of the early pirates in Barbados. They had a lot of pirates in, in, in Barbados because uh, when the clippers were coming across from Europe, the first landfall as they come across to the new world is Barbados. That's the first place they come to. And do you know what Sam Lord did? On his magnificent estate, he had lots of beautiful swaying palm trees. And he used to put lanterns on the top of these palm trees. And when the ships were coming over in the dead of night, they would see the gently swaying lanterns on the top of the palm trees, and they would think that there were lanterns on the mastheads of the boats swaying gently at anchor. And he would steer them all onto the coral reefs, and then he would go and do whatever it is that pirates do. And they were deceived by the wrong light. Here's the true light. Here is the true light coming into the world. Now, says John, we need to prepare for him. We spend an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of activity preparing for Christmas, but what does it mean to prepare our hearts for the Word made flesh, for the true light that lights every man coming into the world? Well, we need to find out a little bit more about what is meant by this description of Jesus as the light. Now, look in verse 4, if you've got your Bible with you, and this is what it says. In him, that is in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So here there's a connection now in John's thinking between life and light. These are abstract ideas. Little difficult for us to get our hands around. But be encouraged. Because two of the most common things in our human experience are life and light. And we cannot define either of them. We can describe them, but we can't define them. It's interesting, isn't it? What could be more common than life? Just look around you. There's a lot of it around here. We are so used to life, we're so used to light, that try and define what they are. It's extremely difficult. As far as light is concerned, scientists who explore in this area of light, they say, well, light manifests many characteristics of particles. It's a lot of little particles bombarding us. And others say, in actual fact, light is a series of waves, like sound waves. And some say it's particles and some say it's waves. Well, they've come together now. They've said, well, actually, it's wavicles. (laughs) See? It doesn't define anything, just describes it, that's all. Partly particle, partly waves, well, I guess there must be wavicles. And so that's how they describe light. They haven't told us what it is. Same, same as life. What, what is life? Well, we can describe it. A living thing grows. You've you probably noticed that. A living, a living thing grows, like, like a, a human being. They, they are born 18 inches, approximately, and then they start growing. It's a wonderful thing to see, see this happen. And they grow on the horizontal plane. And then, for some inexplicable reason, they suddenly tip up and start to grow on the vertical plane. Why? Why do they do that? Who tells them to do it? Anyway, that, that, that's growth. And then, around about 40, they start growing <laughs> this way. It's a wonderful thing to behold. And you say, ha-ha, that person is alive. And if they grow much more like that, they won't be alive for long. But that's life. We're not, we're not defining it. We're describing it. Life is described by saying well, life grows. Life reproduces. People get married. The scripture says God takes one person and joins them to another person. And they too become one. This is divine mathematics. One plus one equals one. And then if they stay around long enough, one plus one equals one, becomes two, becomes three, becomes four, becomes five. Nobody's surprised. That's what life does. It reproduces. Reproduces itself. Life has perspective. People who are alive have the ability to perceive things. They have the, uh, the ability to understand things. It doesn't define what life is. It just describes what life is. Life ha- has the ability to desire Life, life, life does all kinds of things, but we still haven't defined it. it. It is a mysterious thing. And yet we know when we see it. Life will manifest itself sometimes as a plant. Then sometimes it will manifest itself as an animal. Sometimes it will manifest itself as a human being. And there's obviously a link between the two. Human beings tend to eat plants particularly if they're vegetarians. And it seems to do us some good. It keeps us going. So there must be some symbiotic relationship there. Human beings and animals clearly have a relationship because when when they're developing new kind of surgery, before they risk it on us, they try it out on animals. Why? Because the animal's organs have similar characteristics to 
our organs and sometimes they even transplant the one into the other and we recognize our affinity to the animals and the animals sometimes are offended by that little touch of human there <laughs> I enjoyed it very much anyway don't worry I'll never use it again so here, here's the picture all these different kinds of life you see but what is what is this life some people would actually say, well, of course, there's animal life and there's plant life and there's human life. And there's, there are inanimate objects as well. And there's a commonality between the inanimate and the animate because we're all just molecules. Well, actually, we're molecules and a lot of water and space. That's all we are. <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody, but good morning, dear molecules, water and space. That's all you are. Is that all you are? Well, we're describing what you are. Some, some people say, you see, we, we have a commonality with rocks because that's what they are as well. They're just a lot of space, a lot of molecules, and a lot of water. And we're just a lot of space, a lot of molecules, a lot of water, so we're all part of the same. And they diminish, life is. When people say that we are just the same as inanimate life, they are sort of minimizing everything. Like the fellow who listened to a Mozart violin concerto Somebody said, what was it like? Well, I said, it was just a bunch of sound waves that emanated from some catgut that was being scraped by horsehair. <laughs> that's all it was. Well, that's all the Mozart's uh, violin concerto is, isn't it? I mean, the catgut's there and the horsehair's there and, and it, you know, you scrape away and you'll, you'll finish it with some sound waves. Does that describe a Mozart's violin concerto? Yes. No. Doesn't describe the beauty doesn't describe the creativity, doesn't describe the emotion, doesn't describe how it can lift your spirits, doesn't describe how they say it can increase your intelligence. If you listen to Mozart when you're studying, kids. <laughs> That's what they tell me. Well, what is this life? <laughs> Between you and me, we don't know. We don't know. We can describe it, we can see it, and I guess it's not too unrealistic to say to ourselves, wow, what scripture is actually saying is this, that this mysterious thing called life has its origins in the one who in the beginning had already been in an intimate relationship with God and he was God and everything was made by him for him. And incredibly, it is he who came into the world. The light that lighteth every man was coming into the world. I'm talking about Christmas, by the way. This is what Christmas is all about. Jesus said, don't take a lot of thought for your life. He said, what will a man give in exchange for his life? Now, when you use the term life in that sense, it, it means a state of existence. We, we use it and you only go around once in life. So hit it with all the gusto you've got. Many, many years ago, I went to an, into a coffee bar in Manchester, England, called the Cat's Whisker. I went in there because it was full of kids, and I was preaching in churches where there weren't any kids, so I thought I'd better go where the kids were. You know, when you go fishing for people, the first rule of fishing is go where the fish are. You never catch fish in a bathtub, which is what a lot of churches are trying to do. So I went into this coffee bar. Dark, dingy, noisy, 
tripped over somebody. He looked at me as if I crawled out from under a rock. I apologized, and then I thought I'd better say something because he looked rather questioningly at me. And so I said, much to his amazement and my amazement, excuse me, are you alive? It was a very odd thing to say, but that, that is actually what I said. Excuse me, are you alive? And he turned to his chick. That's what he called the young lady with him. Turned to his chick. He said, he wants to know if I'm alive. And she said, well, are you? <laughs> and he said, yes, I am. I said, why? He said, what? I said, why? He said, why what? Why are you alive? Well, he said, why should there be a why? Well, I said, everything in this room seems to have a purpose, doesn't it? He said, I don't know. Well, I said, can you see something that doesn't have a purpose? He said, no. I said, the things that all have a purpose in this room, are they greater or lesser than you? He said, they're lesser. I said, then you, by definition, are greater than all the things that have a purpose. He said, that's right. I said, well, is it not reasonable to assume, then, if lesser things than you have a purpose, that you, being greater, at least have a purpose for being alive? He said, yes, that's reasonable. I said, what is it? He said, no idea. No idea. Do you know something? The world is full of people who are alive and they have no idea why. They have no idea why. Then he looked at me and he said, well, I know why I'm alive. I said, why? He said, because I was born. I said, good. And I haven't died. I said, that's good. You're alive because you were born and you haven't died. He said, that's right. I said, did you have anything to do with your birth? He said, no. I said, do you plan to organize your death? He said, no. I said, so then in a sense, your birth was an accident as far as you're concerned and your death will be an accident. He said, right. He said, I've just realized what I am. I said, tell me. He said, I am an accident suspended between accidents. Get a life. Get a life. I've got some great news for him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by him, including my little friend in the cat's whisker in Manchester, who thinks he's an accident suspended between accidents. You see, in him is life. In him is life. But then John uses the idea of life in a different way. Except for the occurrences in the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the rest of John, he talks about life a lot. And more often than not, he talks about what is literally called the life of the ages. The life of the ages. Sometimes it's called eternal life. Sometimes it's called everlasting life. But literally, it's the life of the ages. Now, just bear with me for a minute. The scriptures teach that as far as human experience is concerned, there are two ages the one in which we're now living is called the present evil age. It's present right now. We're in it. And it's evil. And you don't need to look very far to see the evil. I don't think any of us will have any difficulty saying, okay, present evil age. That's where we're living. Now then, the scripture also teaches the age to come. The age to come. And when it talks about the life of the ages or the life of eternity, what it is saying is this, that there is a quality of life that has nothing to do with inanimate objects. 
It really is not related to plants or to animals. It is related to human beings who have, listen carefully, who have the capacity to live in both the ages. Hence, the life of the ages. They have the capacity to live in both the ages. The present evil age and the age to come. And it's called eternal life. It is a life that will elevate your living in this present evil age so that you live well in the evil. So you live well in the evil and it is a life that qualifies you for eternity. So that whether you live or whether you die, you're the Lord's. So the key to your existence is that you have come into an experience of life where the Lord is the Lord of your life, lifting you above this present evil age, even though you still live in it. And when you die, he will take you as his full responsibility to be with him for all eternity. And this is what the scripture says. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Listen but have everlasting life. Life! Now we're seeing a new dimension of life. We're seeing a dimension of life that is far beyond growth and reproduction and and sensitivity and all those other things that we just used to describe life. Now we're talking about a quality of life that is in tune with God that lifts you in this present evil age and qualifies you for eternity. With God. Life. Life. It's all very mysterious. But this is what Jesus said. Whoever hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. Will not come into condemnation but has already passed from death to life. And John, as he's summarizing his gospel, this is what he tells us. I have written these things for you who believe so that you might know that you have eternal life. He didn't say, I have jotted down a few thoughts here so that when you've read them and struggled through them, you will eventually hope that you might get eternal life. He didn't say that. He said, I've written these things To those of you who believe that you might know that you have eternal life. 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 Now then, this is what John is saying. He said the light that lights every man is coming into the world. And this life, this light comes from the one who is light. What does that mean? What does he mean by light? Well, here's another abstract idea. This is what he tells us in his gospel. He said, men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He who does that which is true comes to the light that his life might be approved. What's the difference between light and darkness? What's the idea here? This was something they talked about a lot when Jesus was here, light and darkness. It was something they talked about a lot when John was writing. The people who lived in in the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they, they talked a lot about darkness and light. And the idea of darkness was it is all that is evil 
What is light? Light is that which banishes evil. It is the antithesis. Light is that which banishes darkness. It is the antithesis to darkness. What is the antithesis to evil? That which is good and right and true and morally upright. What is the light? It is this. That the scriptures teach us that Jesus is not only the source of life, plant life, animal life, human life, earthly life, eternal life, go on and on and on. But in addition to that, he is the one who adds the content of moral sensitivity to life. Moral sensitivity to life. And it's there. Everybody has a moral sense. If you don't believe me, go to a Bucks game sometime and, and don't sit where you usually sit. Go right down courtside, you know, to one of those unbelievably expensive seats and sit on somebody's seat. Just sit there. And when they arrive to take their seat, they will insist that you leave. And you say, why? They say, because it's mine. I say, I don't believe it's yours. It is mine. Well, I'm going to stay here. Oh, no, you're not. Well, why shouldn't I? Because it is not right. But I have as much right as you to sit here. They, all men are created equal. This is America. You don't understand. Right, right, wrong, wrong. You see, everybody has an innate sense of right. This guy who comes and he spent all that money to buy that season ticket at the Bucks game, maybe he's not a particularly moral person, but I tell you something, you take his seat and he'll suddenly be totally moral. <laughs> you never have to teach your kids to lie. All right, son, <clears throat> now, you're, now you're three. <laughs> we need to have a talk. That's what I'm going to do. You're going to be a businessman one day, so you're going to need to know how to lie. So this, this is what we'll do. I'm going to teach you. you. You don't teach a kid to lie. When they've told one, they know how to cover up for it. You know how they do that? By telling another one. There is, funnily enough, in every human being an innate sense, an innate sense of right and wrong, of true and false. Now, it gets screwed up at times, and yet you'll find it in all cultures. Years and years ago, I was with some of our friends who worked among the IRA Indians. I think it was in Bolivia, in South America. Very primitive tribe. How primitive were they? Well, I'll tell you how primitive they were. One of the customs in that tribe was when a girl came to puberty, she climbed a tree on the outskirts of the village and sang a particular song, which simply announced... I have arrived at puberty, I'm available. And then there was a mad scramble from all the boys and men in the village. And the first one who grabbed her and pulled her out of the tree, in every sense of the word, had her. Well, if they went on having her, it was only a matter of time until she got pregnant, she'd have a baby. Then this is what they would do. Because the baby was not just a piece of physical plasma, but because they believed the baby has a spirit, these people, you know what they did? They buried the baby alive. Because, you see, if they'd killed the baby, the spirit would have been released and might have stayed around and haunted them. So what they did was bury it alive so the spirit would die with the body. And they would go on doing that time after time after time until they were buried maybe 10 or 12 babies 
alive. And then one day they would decide they wanted to be married. And as soon as they wanted to be married, you know what happened? If that guy committed adultery, the elders of the village had an adulterer's knife. And the reward for committing adultery was you got the back of your neck sliced open by the elder's knife. Morality. We look at their morality and we say, well, that's twisted and that's warped. Of course it is. But in some ways it is higher than ours because adultery is simply a casual pastime in our culture now. But the point is this. Even though we would call them savages, in actual fact, there was an innate sense of morality there. Light is involved in the life that is in him. And this life and this light lights every man that comes into the world. We are talking now not only of the source of life, we are talking of the source of morality, we're talking of the source of righteousness, we're talking of the source of good, we're talking of the antithesis of evil, and all this is wrapped up in a baby. And we're trying to detrivialize Christmas. We're trying to say the Word became flesh, and the light that lights every man was coming into the world. Now, there's an abrupt change, funnily enough, in this particular passage of Scripture, John's prologue. For then he suddenly says, having given us all these stupendous abstract ideas that we have to really wrestle with, he then says, there was a man, there came a man, who was sent from God. <laughs> His name was John. He was not that light. He came to be a witness to the light so that all men through him might believe. Now this is a very strange, abrupt change here. Probably one of the reasons was this. You remember when John the Baptist, that's the John it's talking about now. There was a man who came from God, his name was John. That's not John the writer of the gospel, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing people, you remember? And one day while he was doing it, he got a lot of his disciples around him. Jesus walked past and John stopped what he was doing and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember? And some of his, John's disciples immediately left him and followed Jesus. Well, that built up and built up and built up. And some of John's disciples, they got their noses bent out of shape over this. And they came to John one day and they said, That man, <laughs> I like the way they said it, that man that you baptized and you pointed out, he is baptizing now and all the people have gone after him. And there's some tension began to develop between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John. And this built up and built up. So in the end, the disciples of John started going around preaching and doing their stuff. And they were basically saying that John was Messiah, not Jesus. There's great tension. And John is writing his gospel for a number of reasons, one of which is to show that Jesus is the Word, not John the Baptist. Just a little bit in parenthesis there for you Bible students. The rest of you, don't worry about it. Now, let's get back to the story. John comes as a witness. Comes as a witness. He says, I'm, I'm not the light. I just came to be a witness to the light. Now, what does that mean? Well, he gives us three great pictures of this. One day, they're trying to interview John 
It was a hopeless task. It was like trying to have an intelligent conversation with a teenager. <laughs> now, I was with a group of them the other day, and we were trying to have an intelligent conversation, but I have learned now, long experience with teenagers, there comes a time when they communicate exclusively in grunts. <laughs> so you ask them a question, they say, uh-huh. And you ask them something else, they say, mm-hmm. So I say, can you explain to me the difference between uh-huh and mm-hmm? And they say, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. It, it's, it's, I, say, I said to them one day, have you forgotten your vocabulary? And they said, uh-huh. <laughs> well, they were trying to interview John, you see. And all they could get out of him was, no, 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 I'm not, no. <laughs> it wasn't terribly productive. How can you put that on the news? And then eventually he suddenly warms to the theme. And he said, look, he said, Jesus is the light. I'm just a lamp. Get it? Jesus is the light. I'm just a lamp. And then a little bit further on, he's already told us that Jesus is the word. He says, I'm just a voice. And then a little bit further on, he says, listen, I'm just the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, in those days, when you had a wedding, the bridegroom would go to wherever they were going to have the wedding, and the best man would go to the house of the bride, and he would bring the bride to the best man. And then he goes into the background. John says, listen, if you're going to have a light shine, sometimes it needs a lamp. That's me. But don't confuse me with the light. And sometimes, if you're going to speak a word, you need a voice. That's me. But don't confuse me with the word. The great news is this, that Jesus, the bridegroom, is gathering his bride, the church. And my job is just to bring people to him. That's all. But don't confuse me with him. That's what it means to be a witness. It means simply to be a pointing away from yourself and pointing to him. We sang with great enthusiasm that old rocky hilly-billy song, Go tell it on the mountain. You just remember? We did, we did all that stuff. Let me ask you a question. What exactly are you going to tell them? Who are you going to tell it to? And when will you start? And why should they listen to you? Pretty good questions there, aren't they? Would you like me to put them to music? <laughs> now when I think about it, think about it. The only reason anybody will listen to you explaining these great, grand, abstract concepts is this. They see something that makes sense. Why in the world should they listen to you otherwise? So witnessing isn't just talking. Witnessing is living. But witnessing isn't just living because if they just see you living a certain quality of life, they'll probably finish up by saying, what a nice guy, what a great kid. And you're not here to be a great kid or a nice guy. You're here to be a witness, a lamp to the light, a voice for the word, the best man for the bridegroom. Well, what did John say? 
Well, you need to go into Mark chapter 1 for that. <laughs> oh, I saw some looks of horror on some of your faces then. And you thought, oh, he's not going to start on that now, is he? And the answer is yes, but he'll finish very quickly. Mark chapter 1, we have a description of John doing his witnessing. This is very, very quick. This is what he says. My job is to prepare the way for the Lord. He was the forerunner. He was the advance man. We know what advance man is, you know. He was the one who was going ahead to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And they said, um, how, how have we got to prepare? Well, he said, you've got to get some things straightened out. You've got to make the rough places smooth. You've got to make crooked places straight. This wasn't John's idea, actually. He was quoting one of the Old Testament prophets about this. And they said, well, how do, how do we do that? How, how, how do we make the rough places smooth? And how do we make the crooked places straight? And he said, you repent, you repent, and you do something that shows you're serious about it. And they said, oh, well, what's repent? And what do we have to do to show we're serious about it? He said, well, you be baptized. And he said, the, your baptism is a purely ceremonial thing. It is a ceremonial washing which will show that you are repenting. And they said, what's repenting? Well, they didn't have this definition, but I'm going to give you a definition of repentance. Listen very carefully. Repentance is an inward change of mind, affections, convictions, and commitments rooted in the fear of God. And sorrow for offenses committed against him, which, when accompanied by faith in Jesus Christ, results in an outward turning from sin to God and his service for the rest of your life. That's repentance. And John said, I'm going to baptize you with water. But when Jesus comes, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. All I can do is take you through a solemn rite which will be symbolic. It will be a ritual. But when Jesus comes, we won't be talking symbolism. When Jesus comes, we won't be talking ritual. When he comes, we'll be talking reality. And the reality is this. You are going to come and repent of your sin. You're going to say, God, I've changed my mind about the way I'm living. I've changed my aspirations. I'm changing my desires. I'm changing my convictions. I'm changing my commitments. I am going to commit myself to the God who made me, from whom I come, through whom I live, to whom I return. I'm yours. Now, I am so sorry. I am so sorry about the way I've screwed up so far. Forgive me. Give me a new start. Do you know what John said? He said, I'll baptize you with water. That's a symbol. But Jesus will baptize you with the Spirit. When he baptizes you with the Spirit, you will know forgiveness of sins. You will know newness of life. You will know transformation of commitment and conviction and aspirations and longing. And you will find that you are going this way and you've done a right about turn. And it's called repentance and faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you prepared your heart for Christ. And we are putting an awful lot of energy into preparing for Christmas. But how much energy 
are we putting into preparing our hearts for Christ? Let's pray together. Now I'm going to pray two prayers. First one would be about preparing our hearts, and the second one would be about being a witness. Take whatever is helpful to you and make it your own prayer. Lord, you said that John was like a voice crying in the wilderness. And what I'm hearing now is like a voice crying in the wilderness of my life. I'm hearing stuff that's, that's new and puzzling and strangely compelling and mildly disturbing. Fascinating. It has the ring of truth about it. And I know that the way I've gone about my life, so far, you have not figured in it. And I guess... I would have to say, I look at my life as an accident suspended between accidents. But what you're saying, Lord, is that you made all things, including me. Wow! If it is true that you made me, you had something in mind. And I want to find out what it is. So I'm coming to you now, doing some repentance, best I know how, saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I've lived so far. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I'm sorry for the things that grieve you and have not brought you honor. I'm sorry for the way I've ignored you. But Lord, so much of it was, I didn't know anyway. I should have done, but I didn't. Please take me. And Jesus, please forgive me. And Jesus, please move into my life. I don't know what it means to be baptized with the Spirit. But if it means that I can have a sense of being forgiven and clean, given a new start, do it. And set me on a new road that I might love and honor you. Thank you that you have said, whoever hears your word and believes, and that's what I'm doing, has got everlasting life, will not come into condemnation, has passed from death to life. Thank you. Now here's the other prayer. Lord, you're the light and I'm supposed to be a lamp. I guess I've had too big a shade so that the light hasn't really been shining. Lord, you're the word. I'm just the voice. But I'm afraid I've been struck dumb too often. Lord, you're the bridegroom. I'm just the attendant. I'd be more interested, however, in winning people to me than in leading them to you. And I'm sorry. 
And I would like to be a witness. Like John. So that through me, as through him, men and women and boys and girls might believe. Hear our prayers. And let our cries descend unto you. In the name of the Lord Jesus.